So whenever the people of God are away from home, whenever they're in hot water, when it's really hard to live as a believer, when you're, you're really standing out, it seems to me there are two options for us. Two temptations. One is of anguish, and one is of assimilation. Whatever the situation, wherever it happens, whenever we're talking about anguish or assimilation. So that's true as you read through the pages of Scripture as the Bible story unfolds. The people away from home in oppression, in exile, whether in Egypt or Babylon or Assyria or Persia. Or as Peter writes in the New Testament, to people living as exiles and strangers but under great persecution, great oppression. Or you track it through church history. Or in fact, you look around the world today, you think of brothers and sisters for whom they are really suffering for being Christians. Maybe they're meeting in fear or secrecy. Maybe they can't even meet. Or maybe perhaps to some extent to a lesser degree in our lives too. It seems to me it is getting harder to live as a faithful Christian, regardless of David Cameron wanting to play the we're still a Christian country card. Probably not a week goes by before you see another Christian up in court for something. Good reasons and bad reasons. But I think the water is heating up. It's harder for us to be faithful. And so, to some extent, we have those twin temptations. Anguish or assimilation. Anguish. We we look around the world and we throw our hands into the air and we are in despair. Has God forgotten us? Is he sleeping? Surely this can't be the plan. This can't be what he was hoping to do. Is he unable? Is he unwilling to change things? How can he allow brothers and sisters from all around the world suffer for their faith like that? How can he let people in our country be hauled up in courts for for, for street preaching or whatever it might be? Or anguish because we look back and we see what it was like in years gone by. Peace and blessing and ease. And, and then we look to the now and we see something of the hopelessness of the now. Things getting worse. Or, or assimilation, the, the daily battle to, to not wave the white flag because we've had enough, because it's too hard. Maybe it's just too awkward or too painful or too difficult for us. And so we just want to blend in. To be assimilated into the culture. Is it worth it? Is it really worth it, day by day, battling on as a Christian? Why not just fit in? Why not just be the same as everybody else? It would be so much easier. So Christians all around the world tempted to take on the mindset, attitude, values of the surrounding culture. Maybe people over them at work. People for whom they are answerable to. People who might punish them for being Christians. Why not just be a Christian on Sunday and then for the other 166 hours, whatever it might be, just blend in and be the same? And as we reach this this series in Esther, with her people, our people, in a land that is not their own, serving a people who do not know their God, we find ourselves away from home, in exile, in Persia. And so those pressures of anguish or assimilation. 
Now, before we jump in to Esther chapter 1, I'm aware that for many of us, this kind of chunk of the Bible is a bit of a black hole. This is where we sort of struggle to work out who's who and what's going on and where are we and how does it all fit together. There are various exiles to various places for various people. And it's often not a bit of the Bible we think that much about. So if I may, I'm going to give us a very kind of brief, broad brushstrokes, five minutes or so, working out how we've got here and what it means and how it fits in. Some of you it's going to be basic and I'm going to be going far too slow. For others, you're going to feel completely bombarded and it'll be far too quick. So both sides, please forgive me. Um, We're going to try and see how we've got here, though. So we're starting right back in the garden. Right back in the garden. God's people enjoying him, enjoying his kind, generous, loving rule over them, his loving word, enjoying the gifts he's given them, enjoying one another, enjoying his blessings. And it is good. It is really good. And then they say, actually, we'd rather go it alone. Thanks thanks for your stuff. We we don't really want you anymore. And so they stop listening to him. They they, they step out from his, his loving word, his loving rule. And as they step out, then in comes sin, rebellion, judgment. When you walk out on the God of life, in comes death. And the world is broken. And the world is at war. And you turn the pages of the Bible and in comes strife, murder, discord. But with little glimpses of hope along the way, little lights in the darkness. And there's a main kind of defining hope for us in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17 with a promise to a man called Abraham. And the promise to him that is from him there would be a huge people and they would have a land and his people would bless the world. That is not just a glimpse of hope, that is an enormous picture of hope. And we fast forward. And we find ourselves in Egypt. God's people, they are huge, they are increasing in number. That box is ticked, but they're away from home. They're crying out to God, they're in anguish. In fact, some of them are assimilated as well. They're under horrible oppression. And so God rescues his people from Egypt through Moses, through the Red Sea, Ten Commandments, Sinai. God tells his people how to live like him, to have their sin dealt with, how to be different to the world around them. Fast forward again, and we're going into the Promised Land with Joshua. And we're in the land, and just for a moment we can breathe, just for a moment there is rest you get a glimpse of what it's meant to be like, a people living in God's place, enjoying his blessings. And then the kingdom splits under Solomon. And this is where we get really confused. So, tune back in. Under Solomon, we split north and south. Ten tribes in the north, two in the south. And again, they say, do you know what, we'd rather have your stuff and not you. And so they are removed from the land. The north, God is not silent. He speaks to them through Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Amos, Hosea. They warn them. But then the Assyrians remove the north from the land. And they never come back. That line more or less is gone. It is finished 
unless we count something like John 4, Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman at a well. That's when they're re-included. The north goes in about 722 BC. So northern kingdom, ten tribes gone. We've got two in the south. And they're removed through different waves, but about 135 years later they have all gone. But not to the Assyrians... The Assyrians have been dominated now by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians remove the south. Again, prophets, Isaiah, Micah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Okay, so north, gone. South into exile to Babylon, 586 BC. But the trouble is, the Babylonians don't stay in charge for long, and then come the Persians. Okay, so Assyria, Babylonia, Persia. Think world superpowers dominating one another. And the Persians, under Cyrus bring many back into the land again. So if you were around last year, you might remember Peter Comont preaching from Nehemiah and Ezra. That was the people back in the land, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city, rebuilding a nation. But here's the thing. Not everybody went back. Some stayed in exile. Some perhaps chose to not come back, but stay in exile. And that is where we find ourselves with Esther. Still away from the land. Lots of families have returned. But actually a number of generations on and many still haven't come back. Now that was the science bit. But it matters because it gives us a glimpse to the kind of people we are talking about in Esther. These are a generation who have been born into exile. These are a generation, perhaps you knew the stories of God powerfully providing the land for them or or God powerfully rescuing his people from Egypt. But they were just stories. They had never seen the land. They had never experienced the blessings God had given their forefathers. It was removed from reality for them. Maybe they had stayed in exile because it was more comfortable. They were in the capital of Persia. We'll look at a map in a second. In Susa. Maybe that was just a nicer place to live. Maybe they had perhaps been assimilated. Maybe. So let's jump into the text. And what we get in chapter 1 as you begin this book is, is, is a sign that this extraordinary Persian empire is thriving in many senses. You see Xerxes, you see how powerful he is, incredible he is, and yet in reality, something of how weak he is as well. So first of all, we're going to focus in on verses 1 to 8 and see his power and his opulence. So you see in verse 1 is 127 provinces over which he rules. If you look on the map there, that is, to do it the right way around, India over here through to kind of Ethiopia, to Kush over there. It is massive, 127 provinces. It is huge. He was probably the most powerful man on the planet at the time. He is not small fry. In terms of military strategy, he wins. He is the boss. He has an immense kingdom to rule over. As well as being a leader, as well as being a military genius he is able to throw an incredible party. So have a look at verse 3. 
In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media. The princes, nobles of all the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendour and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars, couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. A six-month-long party. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I'm not sure I could cope with that. mug of cocoa at half past nine is great. But this is the party of all parties. An incredibly powerful guest list. Verse 3, military generals, princes, nobles. It's a party with beautiful decor. He displays his wealth, gardens, linen, furniture, non-matching beautiful goblets to drink the wine from. Even the floor is a mosaic pavement of beautiful stones. Wherever you look, it is opulence and magnificence and wealth. Of course, when we throw parties, we we lock away our good stuff. (laughs) Put it back in the cupboards. Put covers over the sofas. Put the china away. But not for Xerxes. He is a peacock displaying his beauty, displaying his abundance. Everybody can see his plenty. It's an extraordinary power. But zoom in on verse 8. It's interesting. In a sense, it shows something of any earthly empire's limitations, I think, in verse 8. There are laws for everything. So by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. He is so powerful that even the very drinking at his party must conform to his laws. Which in one sense shows power, but in another, I think it shows a weakness. Real power doesn't consist in regulating such detailed minutiae. That sounds to me a bit more like the government bureaucrats run amok. That sounds a little bit like European Commission when they set up regulation 2257-94, which requires that bananas be of a particular size, free from malformation or abnormal curvature. Isn't that just bureaucracy gone wrong? So yes, he's powerful. But I wonder in verse 8, if we just get a glimpse of the fact that he's not that powerful. Just the first hint of his limitations. The potential for things to go wrong. He can make laws, but he can't control people's hearts. And so you see verse 9 to 21, power and obedience... And read again from verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, you can read them yourself, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. 
But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And the king became furious and burned with anger. Seven days of drinking and he wants to show off his trophy bride. Everything else is out on display. Everything else can be seen for everybody else to see. And now it's her turn. And so with the slight overkill, the seven eunuchs are sent for to go and fetch his wife, to go and fetch Vashti from her parallel party. It's, it's an extraordinary command for a husband to make, isn't it? However powerful this husband might be, to command your wife to come dressed in royal attire for the amusement and pleasure of drunken men, that's to treat her as an object over something that he ruled and had power, had control. It's that kind of mindset which, which means that the sex industries thrive all around the world. It's an extraordinary command, but it backfires horribly because you see that his power is limited because she says no. He... He can make laws that compel people to drink as they wished, but he can't compel his wife to come and display herself before them. And so what do you do now? How do you save face? What is your plan? Well, you gather around you the most trusted advisors you have, and you see what they say. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. The seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. And so they, in their patriarchal society, panic and worry about the trickle-down effects. Verse 16, Myrmican replies in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti's done wrong not only against the king but against all the nobles and and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, well, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she wouldn't come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. It is going to be an enormous mess. They catastrophize. Everybody's going to hear about Vashti, Everybody's going to disobey their husbands. There's going to be discord and rebellion everywhere. And so what's your plan now? Well, the law-loving King Xerxes makes another law and decrees to let everybody know that Vashti is being removed, to, to quash this possible rebellion so that everybody hears and everybody knows so that there won't be a marital rebellion in the households of the Persian Empire. It's interesting though, isn't it? Once the edict goes out, everybody hears what Xerxes is like. It's it's a megaphone that publicises to all 127 provinces in every language and every dialect the fact that Xerxes doesn't have respect in his own household. I wonder if he shoots himself in the foot. It's funny, I think we're meant to laugh I think we're meant to laugh. That's why you get the names again and again and again and the repetition again and again and again. 
satire, humour is often used against totalitarian states. You, you will get it in the book of Daniel, if you know Daniel. We will be referring to Daniel back and forth because there are similarities, interesting parallels and differences. But again, satire there. Or think of Animal Farm, George Orwell, early 20th century, Stalin's Soviet Union. People portrayed as pigs. Satire is often used against these kinds of states. And right through the book, we will see satire being employed by the author, making us laugh at them. We're meant to laugh at the petty bureaucracy gone wrong. We're meant to laugh at his crazy advice he gets from his his advisors and the laws and the edicts that he puts into place. We're meant to laugh at the pompous displays of power, opulence, power that can control some people's actions but certainly can't control hearts. And so this week, at the end of chapter 1, the scene is set for Esther to appear next week. The book starts with this opulence, this peacock-style party that reveals both strengths and weaknesses of any earthly empire. All human kingdoms. But what for us from chapter 1 of Esther? I want us to see three broad applications um, from the first chapter. I think we'll see that even though this is from hundreds, thousands of years ago, this is actually relevant for us, contemporary for us today. The first one is this, do not be assimilated. That is, as an exile, as a person who is not at home, take care that you don't learn to think just like the prevailing culture thinks around you. I think that the mockery and the satire and the humour is meant to bring us up short. It's meant to make us laugh. Ours is a culture that longs for dream banquets that are six months long. In beautifully decorated gardens. With beautiful furniture and beautiful food. And beautiful people with beautiful hair. We're meant to pursue that dream. Look at the magazines as you wait there at the the newsagent and you will see that. You will see the kind of stuff that people aspire for. You will see those things in abundance. We are meant to pursue that kind of a dream in this empire. But I wonder, do you see that at the heart of that sort of a kingdom... There is nothing, there is no real substance, there is no real power. It is empty. And yet we get dazzled by the lights and the shiny things and they are what we want and live for and dream of and run after and they captivate us and they steal our hearts, our daydreams. So the book of Esther says, be careful what you live for. Those things in and of themselves aren't bad. They are gifts from God, many of them. But if we're honest, how easily does that fact mean that we slide into basing our life around them, ordering our lives around them, our hearts run after them? We we love the gifts. We forget the giver. How assimilated are you? How easily do you remember that you're an exile, that you're not at home?
So don't be assimilated. Second one, don't be in anguish. Maybe we utterly despair of how things are going. Esther, as many of you will know, is a unique book in the Bible because God is not mentioned. Not explicitly, not once. And yet what's striking is you will see he might not be doing the big flashy Exodus type miracles, but he is at work. He is silently sovereign. He is in control. And so don't despair because you might have to wait to see what God is doing in your life. You might need to be trust to trust. You might need to be patient with him. That's a great lesson for us to learn, however old we are, whoever we are, because we're very good at forgetting that lesson. And you think, what is God doing at this point in my life? Why has he let me go through that? Where is he? What, what was this last month, this last year, this last decade all about? Where is God in this? It wasn't meant to be like this. This wasn't how I planned it. But I think the book of Esther teaches us to trust him. He is at work. Take courage, don't despair. He is at work. If you look at the events in chapter 1, realistically none of them would have seemed particularly significant. Let's be honest. A party for six months, a queen being removed, a new law being sent out to everybody. Yet the book unfolds and you see something of what God is doing. You see something of the jigsaw coming together, his plan being worked out. Not promising that we will have that kind of clarity. That kind of certainty into exactly what he's doing. But you can be patient and trusting and know that he is silently sovereign. As Romans 8 puts it, he is working all things for the good of his people, conforming them to the likeness of his son. Or Ephesians 1, he is working everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will. When God feels or seems invisible or distant or, or just not there, be patient. Don't be in anguish. He is at work. But I want you to see this as we finish. I want you to see that we need to trust the true king. Because I think God is visible in this passage. But he is visible by contrast. Because if you look at the reality of earthly kings and their earthly empires, and it uses language like glory. We look at Xerxes and we see his petty laws and we see that Jesus is not like that. That is not how he works. If you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian this morning, you might not believe that. You might think that God really is a petty tyrant who is demanding your obedience and who will make you pay if you disobey. But I want to say to you that is not the way God is painted in the Bible at all. He, he, he is sovereign and there are consequences eternally for disobeying him. But he doesn't use people as disposable commodities. He is gracious and patient and kindly. He, he invites his people into a relationship with himself. He has a kingdom, but it's not over the top. Opulence and lavish. And 
He works in and through the unseen and the weak and the marginalised. And rather than seeking to command and use people as objects to feed his pride and pomp and pleasure, our king lays down his life for his people, for his bride, giving himself up for his bride, giving his life as a ransom for many, his blood cleansing us, changing us, transforming us, bringing us life so that we might enjoy his banquet forever. We're about to take bread and wine, a chance to remember the Lord Jesus pouring himself out for us, for his bride. A glimpse of the banquet that is to come, but not an opulent banquet showing off peacock style, but a chance to remember his blood shed and the cost of that. So you see, our king seeks to woo us and to win us and to bring us joy and freedom and value and to transform us, to beautify us. So as we finish Esther chapter 1, in a sense the question is, which king do we serve? Which king do we want to serve? Which, which one do we trust? Because the kings of this world, the empires of this world, look powerful and majestic and impressive. And they captivate us. But don't be in anguish as you see their power. Don't be assimilated. Do you think, is, is it worth keeping going as a Christian? That those kings, those empires are are nothing compared to the Lord Jesus. Our glorious king who is silently sovereign. Who pours himself out for his people. And is working out his plans.